0: Amen. Thank you, Daryl. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus. Titus is one of the last books in our Bibles. It's one of the last books in your Bible that was written by Paul. You're going to find it at the very end of all the books that have a T in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. you got five in a row there. So if you go and you find at the back of your Bible... a book that starts with the letter T, then you're close. We are going to be reading uh, Titus chapter one, verses five through nine this morning. And if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And God speaking through the apostle Paul had these words to Titus. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, nor pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. Please be seated. Earlier this week on Wednesday, we met for our midweek prayer meeting and our midweek prayer meeting is actually a midweek prayer meeting. We get together and we talk about what we need to be praying for. We talk about the church. We talk about our lives. We talk about again what we hear going on in our Sunday school classes and we pray for those things. So rest assured if you've talked to me or you've talked to someone in your Sunday school class or anything like that about something we need to be praying for, you are being prayed over far more than you realize. And with that, we would encourage you to come be a part of that prayer time because we believe at Tunnel Hill Baptist Church that there is power in prayer. That prayer is not a passive thing, prayer is an active thing. But I say all of this to say we are in that meeting, and as often happens in this church, the the conversation grew louder and louder and louder, and we hadn't even started the service yet. And we were blessed this last week with having someone who was kind of new to our midweek prayer meeting, and they were sitting there, and finally, Miss Mary Lou spoke up and said, Pastor, don't you think we should introduce ourselves before our guest thinks that we are crazy? And I said, Mary Lou, I have news for you. We are crazy. We might as well get rid of the illusion. And I have to be honest, when I, got, when I sat down this, mo- this week and I looked at the scripture and realized what we have to talk about, I said, let me get this straight. I am the pastor of this church for a little while, longer, hopefully. And I'm about to get up on Sunday morning and teach and preach about what the biblical qualifications for a pastor-elder type person should be, and then immediately dismiss this congregation to a business meeting. I am crazy. I cannot believe for just a moment in, that anyone in their right mind who is leading a church would tell a church, these are all the expectations you should have for your leading, think about them for 30 minutes, and then go decide if that's actually what he's doing. I guess I don't have much concern for job security or maybe that this is a church and hopefully I am a pastor that is going to hold the word of God higher than anything else. Higher than job security, higher than comfort, higher than what's easy. In light of all that, I would suggest to you that we consider this morning my performance review. And I welcome you as we get into the text today to honestly think about what kind of leader the church should have and how that reflects on what kind of church we ought to be. I know that it is often hard to look for a new church. I know that it's often hard to, to decide what kind of church you want to be a part of. We've spoken with many people, some of you have, some of which are, are here in, in the room this morning, and, and many others as we have ministered to people through the years who find themselves looking for a new church and, and wanting to, to decide what kind of church God is calling them to. And, and oftentimes the first thing we look at is we look at the leader. And I want to challenge you if there comes the day where you have to look for a new church, maybe you move, maybe there is a reason behind all of that, I would challenge you today, listen to what Paul is saying. And as you look at that leader and as you decide where God is leading you, make sure that the, that the pastor of that church, that the elders of that church are being held to the high bar that Paul presents in this passage. Our passage begins with this saying, he says, I left you in Crete so that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. We have to immediately start by asking the question, what is an elder? The word in the original language simply means an older or mature person. Specifically in our text, it talks about someone, an an old man, male person. Now, in our day and age, we're actually joking about this just a little bit with some of the people in our church. In our day and age, we don't like to be referred to as old. We actually live in a day and in a culture where we think being young is good. But that was not always the case. In fact, in in, in the days of Jesus and in the, the days of Paul, to live a long life, to get to the point where you are a mature individual, was considered an honor and a privilege and even so an accomplishment. It was good to be a mature individual. And so this word that they have that comes in here comes as as one one who is mature, a man who is mature. You will notice also in our passage that in verse 7 we see kind of the same things being said, only it uses the term overseer. These two words throughout Scripture are used interchangeably. This is probably because the elder was what they were, maybe an official title or a way to say this mature person in Christ, this mature leader in our church. While the other word overseer was more what they did. They oversaw the ministries of the church. They oversaw the work of the church. They oversaw the theology and the general spiritual health of the church. We do this today. This isn't a stretch. You guys today may say, well, what is, what is my office? What is my title? And you'd probably say pastor. But many of you may refer to me at some point or another or, or in a partic- in a particular context as preacher. Pastor may be my office and certainly also is something that I do, but preacher is what you see me do on the regular. It is the activity that you expect from a pastor. If we look into the broader context of the New Testament, we'll notice that the Jewish faith also had elders. They were often lumped into to the Pharisees and the scribes as Jesus was interacting with people. We see them in the book of Acts quite often as the, the Sanhedrin and the leaders of the Jewish faith and the synagogues were trying to wrestle with what to do with this movement that they call the way with this Christianity. You hear often about the elders and the, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, it's in Acts 11, all the way 11 chapters into the book of Acts, that we first see mention of Christian elders who are leaders in the church in Jerusalem. After this verse, we see the term elder associated with the apostles regularly. So throughout the Gospels and prior to Acts chapter 11, almost every time we see the word elder, It is mixed with the Jewish faith and the Jewish leadership. It is these. It is those that are with the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And after Acts 11, almost exclusively, the word elder is mixed in with the apostles. That it is the apostles and the elders. There are both Jewish elders and Christian elders in the Scriptures. Both of which kind of have that same term. They are mature leaders in the faith that help guide and direct the communities that they are in. Whether it is the church the New Testament church or the local synagogue. We can deduce thus far that these elders were supposed to be mature leaders within the church that would oversee the life and ministry of the church. I would add to our passage that our our passage specifically identifies men in this role. There is never a point in the New Testament where the office of elder is given a feminine term. Not once. Once. If we think about it for just a second, we may have a bit of hesitation because you may say to yourself, that sounds like a pastor. That sounds like, and we've kind of already talked about it that way, that sounds like our pastor. Why don't we call Pastor Josh an elder? Why don't we use that term today? You don't look at our, at our uh, bulletin. You would not look at our, our leadership structure. You would not look at our website and see the word elder. So where did the term pastor come from? Well, in the words of my predecessor, I am so glad you asked. The term pastor comes from a word that means one who shepherds. And believe it or not, the term pastor as one who shepherds only appears one time in the entire New Testament. And we find it in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11. When he says he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as, as, as um, evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. This verse is more connected to the spiritual gift of pastoring than it does to any sort of office in the church. However, the term did not come out of nowhere. If we look at 1 Peter chapter 5, we see these words. Therefore, I exhort you, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ Jesus and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Much like we see the term overseer, the word pastor is an explanation for what the elder does. Notice how Peter uses the term overseer, pastor, and elder in just these two short verses. Literally, in one sentence, in one thought in Paul's mind, he calls them elders who pastor and oversee. They are all lumped together, so when we think of this word of elder that we have, it means... Somebody who leads in the church, who not only exercises oversight in the overall affairs of the church, but also shepherds the church to make sure that they are growing in their faith and being protected from false ideas and false theology. Based on what we can glean from Scripture, scripture, we recognize that this is what the modern day pastor is, And maybe even a strong case for why we should designate them in the biblical term of elder. One more point I want to make about an elder that I found particularly interesting is that the word elder is almost always plural. In fact, in my study of the scriptures, looking at the word elder and going through the whole New Testament, I found only two instances when an elder was referred to as a singular person. One is here when he talks about the qualifications of an elder. The other time is found in how you, how you uh, receive accusations against an elder who is not doing what the Bible prescribes him to do. So in both cases, we can see why those are individualized. He's talking about deciding whether an individual should be an elder or deciding whether an individual should no longer be an elder. This means that in every church instance and every time the office of elder is brought up, there is more than one present in that local church. That's really something we as a church ought to consider. We should not have one single individual who is given the role of overseeing and shepherding and being the mature Christian for the entire congregation. That's something to pray about. We should have, we have indeed, we have a pastor in this church. But it's something that we should seriously, thoughtfully pray about is God calling, is God commanding, is God recommending for the church to have more than one person who does this oversight so that it does not fall on the shoulders of one singular individual. But let's move forward. We've answered the question, what is an elder? And I think by now we've already recognized that this is an important job in the church. This is something significant. This was something so significant that both that Paul t- talks to both Timothy and to Titus and says, this is what you need to do as you establish elders in the place where I've left you. Imagine for a moment that you are Titus. And you are a young man who is in some way, shape or form, been around with Paul. We don't hear a lot about Titus in the book of Acts. But what we do um, understand from our letter today is at some point he was with Paul and Paul left him in Crete. Crete is an island, a fairly large island that did have a significant Jewish population in it and now because of the gospel going to the island of Crete now has a significant Christian population. And he has left them there and one of his most important jobs while he is there is to establish elders. Quite honestly, what, what Titus's job is is to put the leadership in place, those that will shepherd the flock, that will oversee, that will understand the doctrine and be able to distinguish between right doctrine and false doctrine so that Titus can go on. These are This is an important role. Paul then goes on to talk about what to expect from these men. This is what we mean when we title the message and you see it in your bulletin as setting a high bar. I don't know if Titus liked Crete. That didn't say. There is clearly as we go forward in our text in the weeks to come that there were definitely some people who didn't like Crete. But it could have been a temptation for someone like Titus or even someone like Paul to say, just get some people in place and get out of there. And yet that's not what Paul says at all. Paul says, I've sent you there to put things in order, to establish elders, and this is what they should be. And he sets the bar up here, not just find a warm body that can talk. These qualities should be something that these potential elder candidates should already be demonstrating as followers of Jesus. These are not things that they will be willing to do if made an elder. There is no such thing as sanctification by ordination. I want you to recognize that. If you feel God's call and maybe you are in this church and you feel God's call to be an elder, to be a leader in the church, someone who oversees and, and, and helps those people, but you are not living for the Lord, you are not meeting these qualities now, then you are not qualified and we don't care if you're going to be. We do not ordain those who are not already exemplifying the things that we find in this passage. All of Paul is going to say Every qualification we are going to look at today, no matter how controversial or how straightforward, is going to fall under the qualification that he leads with in our passage. Namely this, he says, he says this, namely, if any man is above reproach. Notice again in verse 7, he says it again, for the overseer must be above reproach. We don't use terms like that a lot today. And and while that seems to be something of a churchy term, we do need to understand what on earth that means. To be above reproach means that that you are above accusations, that you are found blameless. In fact, your translation of the Bible may use the term blameless. As we start getting into all of this and looking at every qualification, we have to ask ourselves the question, how could this person's behavior, reputation, or qualifications bring accusation or shame upon both that individual, the church, and Christ himself. We have to be aware that those that we have in leadership are a reflection of not only us as a church, but also the kingdom of God as a whole. And when we start getting into all of these things, we have to begin to ask that question as it relates to every other quality. Paul applies this overarching quality to three different areas in the life of the potential elder. These three include the home, his own conduct, and his doctrine. So let us begin with the home. If we go back in to verse six, we see this, it says, namely, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion, the first quality, the first qualification that a church ought to look for in a pastor is what is his marriage life like? We have a term here that says he is to be the husband of one wife. If we go back into the Greek, it says a one woman man. And oh my goodness, have we had a field day with what this could mean in the modern age. And I have seen both theologians and pastors do somersaults and backflips and all sorts of things in order to understand this passage or to make it fit or make it work in our modern day context. We have to remember that the Greek doesn't have a specific word for husband or wife. that it is just man and woman. We can say with confidence in this one quality that it eliminates anyone who would practice polygamy, polyandry, adultery, or even general promiscuity. That the elder should hold not only his marriage in high regard, but marriage in general in high regard. If an individual is in relationships that, that are intimate beyond his wife or his would-be wife in the future, if he is pursuing that very thing in any way, shape, or form, then that person is, beyond the shadow of a doubt, disqualified from service as an elder. I am also confident that this statement does not mean that the elder must be married. That every elder must be the husband of one wife. And a single pastor or a single elder would be disqualified. Paul himself was single and remained so throughout the entire duration of his ministry. And it would seem strange for him to then require it of those who placed in charge of the church. Now, I do believe that Paul saw the benefits of marriage and recognized that the person who exercised oversight and exercised leadership in the church would benefit from being in a marriage and even a marriage with children so that he could exercise oversight not only in the in, in the church, but also in the home. Maybe even using what he's learned in the home as an opportunity to be a better pastor of the church. Now, the controversy is not really in all of those things. The controversy is in that one little thing called divorce. This is where that blameless qualification becomes exceedingly relevant to us today. The potential elder must begin by asking himself the question, could my previous marriage... And the fact that my marriage has ended in divorce causes some sort of accusation against the church or against Christ. The church must ask this very same question. When a church sets out to consider an elder who has been divorced, we need to ask the question, what will this say about our church as it relates to the gospel, as it relates to... Um, faithfulness and as it relates to the scriptures. Now, I do think that there needs to be some context here. Did the would-be elder neglect the home? Was he obsessed even with his own ministry to the point that his children um, were neglected and his wife always felt like she was second string to the church and to the job? Did his if that's the case, then I don't think this is someone that should be called in to be an elder or called into that service? Was the divorce because of foolishness in in earlier times in life? Was it because they did not exercise biblical mindset when they were seeking a wife? Where they do it? Did the, did the marriage not support each other, encourage each other? all those things we have to ask these hard questions and I would dare say. That if the church does not feel comfortable that they have a clear answer to that, then that individual should not be considered for eldership. Now, you may not like me now, and to be honest, I don't care. Because I think that's what the Bible says. So what might be a context where we would think differently about this? Well, what if you grew up in a c- country that is predominantly Muslim... And everyone is your family is Muslim and you have heard the good news of the gospel, received the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and upon receiving the gospel and be baptizing and being baptized, your wife, your children, your family, everybody abandoned you, left you, and you had nowhere else to go and you continued to grow in the faith. I think that there might be a context here where we should at least prayerfully consider what this man has done. Nevertheless, the Bible is clear the elders to be the husband of one wife a one woman man and if there is any context that gives us question as to what happened in the midst of this issue called divorce i think it is far better that we encourage that man to serve the church to serve him faithfully but to serve him as just a member of the congregation He goes on to state that the potential elder should have children who believe and are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. As I initially read it, I read it from a different translation that said that was from the Christian standard and it said that you should have children that are not accused of why of being wild. And I got really nervous because I don't know if you've met my children, but tame is probably not a word you would use for them. But this word wild is also used in in the New American Standard as dissipation. It means wasteful. It means one who, who just throws things out, who treats things wastefully with little regard. The elder of the church should actively invest in the spiritual upbringing of his children. If a elder or potential elder does not disciple his own children, how on earth can he disciple the church? Again, we want to think about the term blameless. Could the behavior of his children bring accusations or shame upon the church or upon Christ? There would some that would argue that there is an age limit to that. And once a child has reached the age of 18, 20, whatever, and they're making their own decisions and doing their own things, you shouldn't hold the pastor accountable for that. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure if that's true. but I would tell you with great confidence and I would encourage you to hold me to this if the day should come. If there comes a day when one of my children rejects the faith, walks away from not just Tunnel Hill Baptist Church but from the Lord, then it will be time for me to step down. And that is no pressure on my children. That is the commitment that I have to making sure that this church is led by biblical leaders. It is crucial that we notice in Paul's list of qualifications for the elder or the potential elder is that his home life takes first importance. I believe that we as the church should do so as well. If a potential elder or elder is serving the church and his ministry leads to an empty chair at the dinner table every night, bitterness towards the church and the ministries of the church by both his wife and his children, that not only has that individual sinned against God, but also the congregation. There's a mindset that we have in the church today that pastors should be available 24-7. And this is selfish, and this is wrong, and it's to the detriment of many good pastors and their families. If Paul said that the home life was important to the elder, then the home life of the elder should be important to the church. It is why we should have more than one elder and it is why we should have deacons. If you feel like you have a right to call the pastor at any time for anything and he should drop what he's doing and run to you, then I would strongly encourage you to confess and repent. Make no mistake, I want your calls. If you're in the yard, I want to know. If you're in the hospital, I want to know. If your mom, dad, brother, sister, someone else has collapsed or died or something like that, I want to know. But if you need to get in the church building because you forgot your hat, wait. Thank you for a laugh. That got really awkward there for a second. Second... After addressing the home life and addressing the family, he addresses the conduct of the elder himself. He gives Titus five things that they ought not to be. They ought not be self-willed. You may read this in your passages. Arrogant. The term means self-pleasing. If you have a pastor, and this is where the real performance review begins, so take notes and have fun. If your pastor... Is only in it for himself, and is only concerned about how different things in the church reflect on him, reflect on his ministry, reflect on his reputation, and reflect on his ministry that are on his uh, success in ministry. Then we have a problem. The pastor should not be quick-tempered. While I strongly encourage any leader and any person in the church to be passionate about what they believe and to believe what they believe with a certain level of, of enthusiasm, to be quick-tempered to the point that you lash out and attack the, the members of your church and other people in the community is not good. To be addicted to, to drink, it may say wine, the, the, the use of alcohol while not prohibited to the pastor or the elder should not be a significant part of their life. I would argue this is a very slippery slope and one for which I don't have anything to do with it. I don't, get, I don't keep alcohol in my house. I don't like having it around. It is something that I generally avoid. And I avoid being around it if other people are drinking as well. Not so much because I think I am not allowed to drink, but because I do not want to be associated with being addicted to strong drink or addicted to any sort of drink. Nor do I want my drinking habits to have a negative effect on someone else who is struggling. I cannot tell you how many times... I have seen young people working in ministry, working in both youth ministry and young adult ministry, who saw a member of the church drinking out in public and said, if they do it, it must be okay. And a life pursuit of alcoholism begins. I'm not saying you can't drink, but think very carefully about when and where and to what extent. He says not prone to fight this this word literally means he is not a striker. He is not one likely to put up hands and want to fight again. I have no problem with passion, but when passion leads us to anger and to fighting, this is a problem and finally greedy. And I'm going to tell you flat out right now. I see more pastors behind pulpits who should be disqualified for their greed than anything else. And that's for me, personal people that I know. I'm not talking about so-and-so on the TV screen or on YouTube. I'm talking about people I know who are more concerned about their paycheck, the benefits that they're getting from some convention, their packages, their, their um, clothing, all of them. They are more concerned about their financial situation than even the health and welfare of their own church. And I have known pastors who have bled churches dry while convincing them that they were worth it. We need to be aware of that. We need to be careful that when we follow a preacher that he is not always talking about how much or how little he gets paid. The nice things he has or the fact that he should have nicer things. See, this greed that comes in our passage today is a very dangerous thing. And it is one that can slowly build up in even a person that we deem qualified at the beginning. But we must be mindful of it. All of these show a lack of self-control. It's a lack of self-control in their emotions, a lack of self-control in their pleasure, and it shows a strong desire to primarily please themselves. Now, this is a problem in the church in general. And, not, and it should not be one that we make concrete by putting, a, putting in leadership those who have those same faults. As this church seeks to appoint new elders looks for an elder someday in the future, one of the things that you should be very, very mindful of is this, a person who has a strong desire to take care of themselves first and foremost and struggles in the area of self-control. Accompanied with this, Paul gives them six qualities to seek out. They should be hospitable, welcoming, friendly, he should love what is good, celebrating and cherishing the good things of, of life. And I'm not talking the way the world defines it, but the way Scripture defines it. He should be sensible. Now that term sensible is tied to the word sobriety. By contrast to the one who, who is addicted to drink, instead the pastor ought to be sensible, sober-minded, alert. He should be just, doing what is fair, not playing favorites. Pious, doing what is good. I remember not that long ago, I got to sit on the uh, ordination board for a good friend of mine. And as we were going around the table, they were asking him questions. And most of the questions that the other people on the ordination uh, council were asking had to do with kind of his methodology and, and what did he, what is he going to do to attract, uh, young people and how is he going to serve? And they're asking him questions. And, and unfortunately the reality of this is, is we put a lot of people on ordination boards that don't know what Titus says. And finally the, the kind of circle got around to me and I said, tell me about your piety. And I, I had to laugh because this good old boy, that's a good friend of mine said, I don't even know what that word means. And so I explained it and he said, oh, okay, well, yeah, let's talk about that. It matters. Your obedience to the Lord matters. The obedience of your pastor matters. It does you no good to have a pastor who can speak boldly from this place, but his actions and behaviors are quite different. Our faithfulness, our obedience to the Lord, our willingness to do what is right simply because it is what is right is far more important than our our talents, our charisma, and our suits. He should be disciplined. This is where we also get this word self-control. By contrast, these qualities show a man who is in control of himself, both mentally, physically, and emotionally. He is actively growing in his faith. He is one who is clearly becoming more sanctified. Again, I would remind you that these are the qualities that Paul says should already be present in the would-be elder candidates. We do not have sanctification by ordination. It is important to allow these characteristics to develop over a period of time to show that they are a lifestyle and not merely politicking to get a job. 1 Timothy 3.6 says this. He says as part of the eldership, he says, and it should not be a new convert so that they will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. One of the interesting things about the book of Titus, and I think it was necessary of the time, was that most elders were homegrown. People who grew up in the church, who followed the Lord, who became more and more like Jesus as they growed and eventually were called into eldership. They were not people that came from a seminary up the road. And so I think it is strongly, um, I think that it's very, very, very important to Paul in this time that as we raise up our young people, that we are developing them to know what they believe, to serve the Lord, to live out that faith so that one day they may very well come to this calling. Lastly, he addresses the matters of doctrine. Paul says that he must hold fast The faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. It's important to note that Paul says the teaching, implying that the beliefs and teachings of the church were starting to become much more defined and much more stable. Paul is reminding even us today that there is right teaching and that there is wrong teaching and that we need to be able to trust our elders and have confidence that they can distinguish between the two. This does mean that some of you are not going to like what they have to say. I hate to say it, but it's true. That if they, if their job and and, their, and part of their, their overseeing is to tell you what is right and good and proper belief and also what is wrong and unbiblical and unfaithful, we have to be willing to, to receive that and also to trust them. In fact, Paul gives two specific reasons why they need to know what the Bible says. First, because he needs to encourage people to know and understand what, and believe the truth. We are to, as as an elder, we are to cultivate and encourage you as you grow in your faith so that you will believe good and proper things about God. Along with that, it is to refute the teachings that would draw people away from the truth. As we go to the end of this passage, I, I want you to notice this. He says, holding fast to the faith, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort with sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict at nowhere in this Passage does it say that we are to condemn, to belittle, to make them feel stupid, or to make them give up. But we must give our elders the liberty to speak the truth into our lives, even when we don't like what they are going to say. And we have to be willing to love the truth even more than our own preferences and our own comforts. you're beginning to see why this is such a high bar. The elder is called to do something that is unbelievably hard. And sometimes leads them to feel utterly and crushingly alone. You may ask the question, why on earth would anybody want to do a job like this? To be looked at under a microscope, to feel the weight and the burden of the spiritual lives of an entire congregation, to know that some days you will walk alone and some days you will have to carry your children along with you on that hard road. And I can only tell you this, elders do it because it's worth it. Because they love Jesus more than they love themselves. And they love the church more than anything. One might ask, how in the world do you give an invitation to a message like this? And I can only say this, At the beginning of our time together, I I told you that we must be crazy, or quite specifically that I must be crazy to preach a message like this before we go into a business meeting. Well, I think you all know that I am a little crazy. And if you don't know for sure, ask my children. They'll be happy to affirm that that, that craziness. Except for one thing. The gospel is true. But there really is a God who knows you, who loves you, and who sent His one and only Son to die on the cross for your sins. That to give God glory and to serve Him with all your heart is really the best thing that you could possibly do with your life. And the most important thing that will ever matter in all of creation is that you know Jesus and that you grow in your walk and your love for him. Now that's something worth surrendering your life to. And that's true for me. And I stand up here today as many other people have before me and other people in this room have done as well. To say that Jesus is the Christ. And that he's come to save you from your sins. And he is calling you to himself. And he invites you to come. If God is calling you to do that today. Then I hope that's exactly what you'll do. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King Lord. We thank you so much for your word. God, we praise you for the high bar that you have set for us. God, we are reminded time and time and time again that you are worthy of all of it. That you are worthy of the praise, that you are worthy of the time, that you are worthy of the sacrifice, and that you are worthy of this high bar that you set for those that you place in leadership. Lord, I pray that this church will never compromise on that. That we will never in some way say that you are not worthy of, Of the high bar that you've set for elders and just put any old guy in there. Lord, I pray that we will never say you are not worthy of all of our love and all of our affection. Lord, I pray that we will never say that you are not worthy of our obedience in all things. Because God, we know you are. God, we know it because of what you did by sending your son. Lord, I pray that if there are people here today that are just coming to understand that you are worthy, that you are worthy of them surrendering their lives to you through Christ. Lord, I pray that today will be the day they do that. And Lord, I pray that day is the day that we as a church recommit to serving you, to following you, and to rising up to the high bar that you set set for us. And God, that even as we do that, that we rest in your grace, knowing that you are the one who did it all. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.